want to invite you to turn to 2 Samuel 9 if you haven't already. And uh, as you're turning there, I'm curious, I want you to think about what is your favorite meal of all time? When you look back at the history of meals, what is the meal that brings you the most joy, the most fondness? And I'm guessing it wasn't uh, the granola bar you ate in between meetings at work. It probably wasn't Taco Bell drive through though that breakfast slaps. Don't hate on it, try it. It probably wasn't even a great meal that you had by yourself. I'd bet your favorite meal of all time was around people that you held most dear. Because what makes a great meal isn't just what's on the table, but who's around the table. Maybe you're next to someone you love. Maybe you give them a bump and say, you'd be at my favorite meal. My wife's favorite meal was... um, on a cruise ship, actually, we were like searching, exploring this cruise ship, and we found this really cheap pizza spot, and uh, we got quattro formaggi, which means four cheese. It was a four cheese pizza. And my wife, still to this day, thinks this average cafeteria pizza was her favorite meal of all time, because just exploring around midnight on a Thursday, away from our kids, on a cruise ship, eating this pizza together, was solace and relief. It was joy. It was an adventure. Even cheap pizza can be a great meal, right? I think my favorite meal might have been at Zaxby's with, uh, with Pastor Tony, where the cashier thought we were a couple. <laughs> Best service I've ever gotten in my life. I still have napkins from that day. What makes a meal really special is when you taste that perfectly cooked piece of Wagyu steak and you look at the person across from you in the eyes with your eyes popped, and you say, can you believe how good this is? Or you're, you know, traveling in Italy, and you try this new cheese you've never tried before, but you get to look at your friend or your wife or your husband and say, or your kid and say, this is incredible, isn't it? What turns meals into memories are the people around the table. And this morning, we get to read about the best meal in the Old Testament. And what makes it special isn't what was on the table, but who was around it, the king, and us. And we get to have our eyes pop open as we see new wonders, new tastes of the gospel to the story of Mephibosheth. And so here's the, the one main point, the one thing I want you walking away from here thinking about, this phrase, set the table for the king. Set the table for the king. That's what we want to walk away doing. Why don't you uh, say that out loud with me? Say, set the table. table. That's what we want to do. Two points that illustrate or uh, beef up that main point, and that is that the king pursues us and the king provides for us. He pursues and he provides. Let's start with point one, the king pursues. If you look at verse one in chapter nine, King David says, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So what's happening is King David is looking for someone in the former king's house to show his kindness to. Why? Well, if you read earlier in 2 Samuel, uh, Jonathan Jonathan and David, Jonathan is Saul's son, they made a covenant to stick to one another, to look out for one another. Maybe you've seen that new uh, movie, The Covenant, with Jake Gyllenhaal. If you love Taylor Swift, don't be mad at me for bringing up Jake Gyllenhaal. (laughs) But that's a movie about how two guys will cross enemy lines and and travel to great distances just to look out for one another. David and Jonathan made that pact. We're looking out for one another. 
And so uh, David, in this scene, 2 Samuel 9, 1, says, I want to show, I want to fulfill this covenant love, this faithfulness I made to Jonathan, to the people of his house, his son. Is there anyone Jonathan has left that I can show kindness to? Now, this word kindness is the Hebrew word hesed, which is a lot stronger than our English word kindness. When I think kindness, I think the person in front of me on the airplane doesn't recline their seat, because who would do that? That is evil. His said is much deeper than kindness. His said means more so steadfast love. His said is a combination of all the attributes of God, jumbled up together, turned to 300 degrees, and called God's love. His said, it's, it's uh, his covenant faithfulness, his mercy, his grace, his loyalty. Daryl Bach, a commentator, says, in short, God's his said are his acts of devotion and loving kindness that go beyond the requirements of duty. It's his unbreakable covenant bond of love and loyalty that is not based on your performance or his emotions and feelings. And this bond of love inspires mercy and compassion towards another. His said, just to give you a living illustration, is when a wife prays for years for her unbelieving son, or her, uh, excuse me, her husband. His said is parents who lovingly care for a difficult child who never says thank you. His said is bailing your best friend out of jail. His said is when you go to your niece's dance recital and sit there for four hours and watch, <laughs> and watch Red Zone like this. That is a true his said. So David has set up this global kingdom in Israel. He's richer beyond our wildest imaginations. His army is basically unbeatable. And let's remember, Saul was the former king. He was David's biggest enemy. Saul tried to kill David for years. And yet, what does David do? He says, who in Saul's family, who in Jonathan's family, who in the previous regime's family can I show loving kindness to? And that's what happens when you really receive God's love. You can't help but want to give that love. Let it flow out of you to another, even to your enemies. And so this servant of Saul's estate, named, I don't know how to say his name, Ziba? Let's go with Ziba. He answers David's question, middle verse 3. There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Now, David discovers that there's a, a son of Jonathan who uh, was left a, a, as an orphan. His name was Mephibosheth. Now, scholars believe that his name was changed to Mephibosheth because Mephibosheth literally in the Hebrew means despised one. And no one would name their kid that. And here's what we know about the poor plight of this boy. Here's the kind of people King David and Jesus the greater David are after. The king pursues Mephibosheth, who's first broken. He's crippled, the text tells us. And we know this because if you read 2 Samuel 4.4, which is earlier than this text, we, we learn that when Mephibosheth was five years old, his father Jonathan and his grandfather Saul were killed in a battle against the Philistines. And fearing that the Philistines would then kill the, that, that grandson, that son, Mephibosheth, they would take the heir of that, these kings. A nurse grabbed Mephibosheth and fled with him to Gibeah, the royal residence. But in her haste, she dropped him, and both of his feet were crippled. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't even look when a kid gets a splinter. Could you imagine like a five-year-old kid being dropped so harshly that he becomes handicapped for the rest of his life? It breaks his legs, and they're never healed. 
Now, having two broken legs in this period of time not only had physical and economic detriments for one's quality of life, but social detriments as well. Being crippled was considered a spiritual curse. You may recall the story in John chapter 9 where Jesus passes by a blind man who was blind from birth, and the disciples ask him, Jesus, what sin did this blind man do or his parents do where God punished him with this physical ailment? You see, in this society, receiving a physical ailment also came with the assumption that you did something wrong and God was punishing you for your sin. And how comforting Jesus' words would have been to Mephibosheth, where he says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed through him. And we're about to see the works of God through this man. Mephibosheth is pursued by the king, though he's broken. Second, he's a nobody. Verse four tells us, the king said to him, to Ziba, where is he? Where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Macra, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. So now what we find is 15 years after this accident where Mephibosheth was, was handicapped, we got a 20-year-old Mephibosheth living in this place called Lodabar. Now Lodabar means literally nothing in the Hebrew. It's like being from Bunn, North Carolina. <laughs> I'm not from here, so I can say that, and I'm leaving. So <laughs> this is a nothing town, nowhere, the slums. It's like Nazareth. It's a place where the rejected of society, where the outlaws hid and lived. Uh, our worship, my worship, our worship pastor, R.C. Eric, said that only Mephibosheth knew how low the bar went. <laughs> you can roll your eyes at him later. He was in a nowhere place. He was a nobody. He was broken. He was nobody. And then thirdly, we see that Mephibosheth was the enemy. Why is Mephibosheth hiding in this nothing town called Lodabar? Why is a former prince living in the slums? Well, because he was considered David's enemy. The custom of this time was whenever a new regime or new dynasty came to power, the scene shortly after was a purge. Not only do the history books confirm this, but it's even described in the Bible. God watched in horror as kings like Basha in 1 Kings 15, or Zimri in 1 Kings 16, or Jehu in 2 Kings 10 executed the remnants of the previous regime in order to prevent them from reclaiming power later. It was conventional political policy, solidification by liquidation. Everybody knew it, everybody believed it, everybody practiced it. That's why Mephibosheth is kind of living this, you remember that movie Man in the Iron Mask with Leonardo DiCaprio where he's hiding with this mask in this jail cell because if people found out who he was, they would try and give him power. He's living this existence because the king would kill him if he found out he was still alive. Now we perhaps understand why David says to Mephibosheth when Mephibosheth comes before King David, do not fear in verse 7, because Mephibosheth was probably shaking. So David's royal guard rides out of the palace, out of the city, into the slums of Lodabar, and people in Lodabar are probably sticking their heads out as this royal uh, procession proceeds, and they're whispering, like, who, who, who did David come for? Who did he send for? Why would they come here? The king never comes here. And the answer followed, oh, they're after that little cursed, crippled boy, Mephibosheth, the former king's grandson. His life's going to be over soon. David's men get off their horse. They kick down Mephibosheth's door of his tiny little house. Mephibosheth is probably hiding, knowing what's coming. This is the end. It's over for him. The text even seems to 
remind us, verse 6, that it's the end, because it says, Mephibosheth, just to reiterate, the son of Jonathan and son of Saul. He's done for. And David said, end of, end of verse 6, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. Do with me what you will. You can almost, as you read the story, you can almost see the little tears coming out of this crippled man's eyes as he, with disfigured legs, awkwardly falls on his face before the king who was about to kill him. Now remember, David is the same king who in the last chapter, 2 Samuel 8, just slaughtered his enemies ruthlessly. He wiped out two-thirds of the Moabite population. So what do you think is going to happen to the former king's grandson? And here's where we find the second point. The king pursued somebody who was broken, nobody, an enemy. But to the surprise of everyone, the king provides. What does he provide? First protection, verse 7. And David said to Mephibosheth, do not fear. Oh man, what comforting words. Don't fear, for I will show you kindness. Can you guess what word that is again? He said, for the sake of your father Jonathan. Now, David's don't be afraid immediately changes everything for Mephibosheth. David's promise, said becomes Mephibosheth's shelter. You ever drive in a car with your mom, and you almost get an accident, and she does this thing where she, like, covers you? And I'm like, Mom, I'm 23. What are you doing? <laughs> like, this doesn't actually do anything, right? It's comforting, but it doesn't actually do anything. David is saying, my arm is going like this around you, and it's actually going to do something. Because whoever goes against the king's orders is dead. David says, you're safe. Now, you can see the parallel here between David's protection and love for his enemy Mephibosheth, the sort of thing that wasn't supposed to happen, with a text like Romans 5, where it says, while we were yet helpless, while we were yet sinners, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. He stretched out his arm on the cross to protect us from sin and Satan and death. And this is ultimately what our soul needs more than anything. You don't need a new Tesla more than anything. You don't need a promotion more than anything. What you need more than anything is the king's protection. Let me just remind you of something, friend, especially if you're new here, you're not, you don't go to church regularly, welcome to IDC. I want to remind you that you're on this little ball of rock called Earth, and it's spinning around space at zillions of miles per hour. And even if, you know, the planet doesn't run into anything, you know you're going to die. All of us are going to die, which means that under every single one of us, there's this trap door that's going to open one day, and we're going to fall off this ball of rock. And underneath that trapdoor will either be the everlasting arms of Jesus Christ or absolutely nothing. So maybe, yeah, you can get a master's degree. You can get a good insurance policy. You can have a good savings account for some security. But the biggest savings account in the world will not stop cancer. It cannot stop car accidents. It cannot prevent a broken heart. It can't give you anything eternal. These are things only God can give us. He's the only one who's strong enough to put his arm out and actually protects us. He's the only one who actually gives you love that you can't lose. 
This is the protection the Christian has. David says to Mephibosheth, now my protection is only the beginning. That's the base package and you've been upgraded to platinum, baby. <laughs> this ain't like Delta, we actually give upgrades around here. <laughs> he promises protection, secondly he gives him affluence. Verse seven, he says to Mephibosheth, not only am I gonna, no, no one's gonna hurt you, I'm not gonna hurt you, no one's gonna hurt you. Verse seven, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. Now this would have been the royal family estate that Saul once owned is now being returned to Mephibosheth. This would include servants and wealth and land and farmers and produce. Verse nine, David's like, hey, Ziba, get, get over here. I want you to take all that belonged to Saul and his house, return it to Mephibosheth, and here's what I want you to do, Ziba. You and your sons and your servants shall spend the rest of your life tilling the land for him, bringing him produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. Ziba's like, me? Really? Okay. And what this means is Mephibosheth's days in the slums are over forever. Now he's something unheard of in the ancient world, a rich cripple. And isn't this what we are in Christ? Paul says in Ephesians, we were dead in our sin. That he says in the next chapter, but we've been given the unfathomable riches of Christ. Now, that, you might be like, okay, I got the riches of Christ. What does that even mean? I just want you to imagine for a second that what happened to Mephibosheth here happened to you. You became like an instant billionaire. And Let's say this afternoon, as a billionaire, you go to a coffee shop, and you have three $10 bills in your wallet. And you go to Starbucks, and you get a pumpkin spice latte. And the total is $17, apparently. <laughs> and then the barista turns the iPad around and does that really guilt thing, like, hey, how much are you going to tip me? You know, I hate that. It's so, like, stop that. And so you're, all right, I'll give you, I'll take two of the 20s out of my wallet and give them to you. You keep the change. I still got the 10 in my wallet. Later that day, you've left the coffee shop, you've gone to work, you've lived your whole day, you open up your wallet, and suddenly you find that there's nothing in there. The other $10 you had is missing. I either lost it or accidentally gave it to the cashier. Now, what are you gonna do as a billionaire after you've lost $10? Are you gonna call the police and interrogate the barista? Are you gonna call a citywide search for the missing $10 that you had in your wallet? No, you're gonna shrug and be like, ah, it's not a big deal, it's 10 bucks, I got plenty. You're a billionaire. You're too rich to be concerned with that small of a loss. Duh. Ah, but you see, this week, someone criticized you. Last week, something you bought or invested in or someone you poured into turned out to be less valuable than you thought. Something you wanted to happen didn't happen. Your plans got all screwed up. Those are real losses. But are you really going to sweat such a small loss when you hold all the lands, titles, riches of Christ? If you're a Christian who's living as if your spiritual wallet is empty, 
like your contentment in life has been disrupted, if you're shaking your fist at God, tossing and turning at night, it's because, I, I submit to you that it's because you don't know how truly rich you are. If you're upset about your status with other people, if you're constantly lashing out because they hurt your feelings, you might call it a lack of self-control or a lack of self-esteem, and you might be right, but more fundamentally, what's happening is you've totally lost touch with your identity as a child of God. As a Christian, you've been handed all the righteousness of Christ, all the acceptance of Christ, all the power of Christ, and you're sitting here wringing your hand to God over $10. And this is what gives Mephibosheth this sustainable joy and gratitude throughout all of 2 Samuel, even through all the twists and turns that we'll see later on in 2 Samuel in his life, because he knows how poor he was and now how rich he is. A minute ago, Mephibosheth was calling himself a dead dog. Now he's sitting at the king's table as a son. I mean, this is why Christians sing. Growing up in the mosque, we didn't sing because we got to work our way to the table. You and I have been given our place at the table, so we sing. We are happy in Jesus. Take my $10. Take my $30. I got him. We have the king's protection. We have his affluence. And thirdly, the king provides adoption. You see, the greatest gift that David gives Mephibosheth isn't his stuff, it's himself. David says in verse 7 to Mephibosheth, you shall eat at my table always. David doesn't want to just give him things. He wants to give Mephibosheth his heart. I love the end of verse 11. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. This former enemy is now a member of the family. And what a picture of the gospel, right? Like a broken nobody who was the king's enemy, is sought after by the king, brought in the king's home, given the king's protection, affluence, and adoption. And why this is in your Bible, the New Testament, Jesus says, everything in the Old Testament points to him. This is in your Bible because this story is a reflection of the kingdom of God. In 2 Samuel, what you'll find is that the strong kings, the mighty armies, get crushed, but the cripples become rich and get fed. And in the kingdom of God, the strong and the independent, those who think they can step into the throne room and wow God with their acts, their deeds, or their GPA, or their accolades, or their diplomas, or their promotions, they find out how unsuccessful and how unimpressive they actually are. And they get crushed. They get the Messiah's justice. But the meek and the helpless and the forgotten and the enemy, those willing to leave their former life behind and fall before the king's face in homage, they sit adopted at the table. And the story of Mephibosheth is our story. We are Mephibosheth. We're spiritually broken. We've sinned. We're enemies. We're crippled. I can't even get up spiritually. We're enemies of God that are dead in our sin. And dead people are good at being what? Dead. That's it. And here's the gospel, friend. You don't have to reach up to God. He came down to you. He sought you out in Lodabar. He brought you into his home. He said, sit at my table and be my son forever. Be my daughter forever. And like David, he remembers his covenant of love. He does not forget. He says, to whom can I display my his said to? And he looks you in the eye, friend. You know, that's actually one of the major themes in the Old Testament is God's has said towards us. You know, the most referenced verse in the entire Old Testament is Exodus 
34, 6, the Lord describes himself as merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in, his said, steadfast love. Psalm 136 says God's, his said, endures forever. Psalm 23, at the very end, David tells us that the Lord's his said, chases after us all the days of our life. And how is his said translated in the Greek in the New Testament? Agape. Another word for God's forever love. John 3.16, that famous, famous verse, for God so agape, so hesedded, so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you were to wake me up early in the morning, abruptly, at 3 a.m., like my kids often do, what would naturally come out of me is grouchiness. My, my three-year-old came into our bed and started like getting in the middle of my wife and I and making all this noise, and I woke up, and I looked at my wife and said, get that boy out of this room. <laughs> not my finest moment. <laughs> but if it were possible, it's not, but if it were possible to wake God up abruptly in a panic, if you could catch God off guard, what would most freely flow out of him is his, his head. His steadfast love, it just flows out of him onto you. Now, I think some of us tend to view God as brittle and easily offended, hard to impress. Some of us view his heart towards us as cold and uneasily moved. But the Bible, it goes to great lengths to try and show you that what most instinctively comes out of God when he looks at you is his, his said, his steadfast love. And perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life is that he's got you calling yourself a dead dog like Mephibosheth a broken nobody that God doesn't want to be around. And what a tragedy to God that is, that somehow you have to impress him for him to like you. My, I have a six-year-old son. If I got my, my six-year-old is really into Pokemon cards right now. If I got him a Charizard for his birthday, it, you don't know what that is. It's, it's expensive and awesome. <laughs> he opened the Charizard. This gift he's wanted for so long is very special to him. And upon seeing this gift that I just wanted to give him for his birthday, he immediately scrambled to his piggy bank to try and pay me back. How painful that would be to this father's heart. And I would simply remind my son, no, no, Aiden, this is who I am. I'm your dad. I just love seeing you happy. I just love giving to you. Not because you earned it or need to do anything to pay me back. I just love you. You just have to open it and enjoy it. And listen, I would bet a lot of you feel like you're not very delighted in right now. Your boss is frustrated with you. Your spouse is unsatisfied with you. Your kids are annoyed by you. And maybe you think God is all those things towards you as well. But 2 Samuel 9 here is here, friend, to remind you of the gospel. That God loves loving you. It's his greatest joy to take broken, nobody Mephibosheths and invite them to his table. That's why, you know, the Bible says it's the party in heaven every time even one person repents and trusts in Christ. They're getting the table ready. And now, anyone, and I mean literally anyone, who comes to Jesus and says, I'm a Mephibosheth. I don't got my life together. I'm unimpressive. I'm an enemy because of my sin. Help me. 
Jesus looks at them and says, you are now protected by my blood poured out for you. You are clothed in my riches of all my righteous acts, and you are now forever adopted into the family, treated as if you were made by God. And how should we, Christian, respond to the immeasurable kindness of Jesus Christ? By mirroring the king's hospitality. By setting the table. Say it with me, set the table. So more Mephibosheths can join us. Notice it is the table that is the means by which David invites Mephibosheth in. And this story is, is a wonderful example of how the table, hospitality, is how we are to invite other Mephibosheths to join us. What is hospitality? You're in Mahode, so you probably know. But hospitality, for those who are unfamiliar, is not entertaining. Entertaining is about impressing people. Hospitality is about serving people. Entertaining is often about the host and how special they are and their china is. Hospitality is about the guests, putting the spotlight on them. Entertaining is often shallow and superficial, but hospitality involves depth and authenticity. It literally means love for strangers. Hospitality is when we extend outsiders an invite to come in so we can meet their physical and spiritual needs. That's what is exemplified by David to Mephibosheth here. If apologetics is Christianity on defense, hospitality is Christianity on offense. And our quarterback is better than Mahomes. <laughs> the gospel was spread in the book of Acts through Mephibosheth stories, people inviting the lost, the broken, the nobodies to their table and telling them about the king. It's conversations, not preachers. It's life on life, not programs that really result in city revival. We see this in the book of Acts with Lydia, right? In Acts 16, the Lord opens up her heart and immediately Lydia opens up her home. This is how it ought to work for us. This is why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, I didn't just share the gospel with you, I shared my life with you. This is why one of the qualifications for a pastor in 1 Timothy 2 is hospitality. There's only two like, really things you have to be good at, aside from character, to be a pastor. Teaching and hospitality. Now, everyone seems to care about pastors being good at teaching. When's the last time you assessed a pastor on their hospitality? This is why Jesus was known as a friend of sinners. If you read the Gospels, I find this so interesting, specifically the book of Luke. It says that Jesus Christ came to do three things. The Son of Man, Luke says, came to seek and save the lost, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking. All three are hospitality. I mean, Jesus just hosted a bunch of dinner parties and said, anyone can come. Because the central job of the church, the mission of the church, is to invite Mephibosheths to the empty seat so they can meet the king. And yet, I don't know about you, man, I, I meet so many Christians, we're content to sit with our brothers and sisters and play Settlers of Catan. <laughs> Any empty chair next to you is meant for somebody far from God in Lodabar. Are we going after them? Are Lodabar's being in invested with us, former Mephibosheths, bringing current Mephibosheths to the king? I mean, this is the story of RCC, to be honest with you. We went to Lodabar, Baltimore. I mean, Baltimore's beautiful, but it's Baltimore, man. 
We want to go to a place that's hard that no one else is willing to go. And here's what we're going to do. This was our strategy. Worn out Bibles and worn out dinner tables. We're going to invite people over for dinner and teach them about Jesus. And here we are, 300 people, about to plant our third church. And our third church planter is the chef. Uh, chefs make great church planters. Because hospitality actually works, man. Like, if you can create an inviting environment for somebody who's far from God, you would be shocked how much life change would happen. There's a woman named Cherie who came to our church for the first time, and she felt the warmth of our people. She felt the reverence we had for the king. And her first Sunday, she sat in the service and said, God, she said, the spirit of God told her, my life is going to change at this place. There's, I don't know what it is, but when we open up our tables, when we open up our places, and we love people, and we tell them about the king, God just does stuff there. And this isn't, let me just warn you, this isn't sexy. This isn't easy. We had a guy live with us named Aaron. He would, with his shoes on, put his feet on my coffee table. You know how hard that is for a Middle Eastern man to stomach that? <laughs> Get your feet off my coffee table. This guy, <laughs> this guy, he was not a Christian at the time, he was living with us. One Sunday while I was preaching, like the Saturday night before, he had snuck a girl into my basement. He snuck a girl into the pastor's house. And then while I was preaching at RCC, he snuck her out. And I caught it on my ring camera. And I'm like, what do I do in this situation? Do I, like, confront him? Do I let it go? And I knew if I confronted him, like, bro, you sneaking girls over to my house, it would crush him. So I let it go. About a month later, we're having a heart-to-heart. Just, you know, regular hospitality stuff, just having coffee, hanging out. And he confesses to me, Adam, I need to tell you something. I snuck a girl over to your house. And he's, he's crying as he tells me. And he's, you can feel the shame. And I look him in the eye and said, Aaron, I know. I saw it on the ring camera. <laughs> and it was immediately like, oh, shoot. <laughs> like, <laughs> and here's what I told him. And here's the gospel, Aaron. I know and I love you. You're safe. I'm not kicking you out. Stay as long as you want. He prayed to receive Christ that night. We are to be a people inviting Mephibosheths into our lives. In our homes, in our church gatherings, in our growth groups. Are you going to Lodabar to do this? I imagine if Jesus came to your growth group, he'd be like, great party, great food, cool study. Where are the Mephibosheths? Even here, he's like, where, where are all the broken people? Where are the, you know, where, where's, where, where's the person who deals drugs? Where's the person who's in a gang? Where's the person... Who, who would never usually step foot in the church because you brought them. And uh, can I be honest with you? I'm going to land the plane in a second, but if I'm being real with you, I don't want to do this. I like Catan. I like Monopoly. Let's just sit in as Christians and have fun and make awkward Bible jokes and hang out. In my own flesh, the max I want to do is just show up to the service, get fed, and maybe I'll tithe a little bit. 
And the, the max amount of hospitality I naturally want to do is meet you at Applebee's, split appetizers and split the bill, and then I'll see you next Sunday. I don't want people in my house, sitting in my recliner, eating my favorite chips. If no one will go there, I'll go there. I don't want to do this. I'm a sinner. Naturally, I'm not hospitable. Naturally, I would probably look at Mephibosheth on the side of the street, hand him a few bucks and say, go to school, kid. On my own, I am so selfish. But can I tell you about a man named Jesus who saw me in my little bar, who came to this earth to find me, who took my name to the cross, who protected me with his life and said, you're forever safe in my home. And so we would never forget it. He tied our weekly ordinance of communion to hospitality, to food. The bread and the cup is God saying, welcome to my table forever. And we take it knowing we're safe and knowing our very mission is to go out and get more. So would you go? Go to Baltimore. Go to the Loda Bars in Morale. Just go. And as you go, remember the king's words where he says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison, you came to see me. As you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And when you see the king, you will not regret practicing gospel hospitality. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess in our no own natural selfishness, we don't want to open up our homes, we don't want to give up our calendars, we don't want to spend our money on people that will probably take advantage of us, not say thank you, people who are far from you, but Lord, may we never get over the grace that you, the king, sought us out. That our place at the table was not earned, it was given. You took a chance on us. You rescued us. Help us do the same for those far from God in our city and in the cities around the world. Help us to go to the places that no one else is willing to go, the nobody towns, the nobody cities. And may you use our small acts, simple acts of hospitality to fill your table with every tribe, tongue, and nation so we can all sing in unison how great is our King who gave us this great grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.